We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. A gentle reminder of our special offer on our new subscription service, Intelligence Squared Plus. Yes, you don't have to live in London anymore to take part and vote in our live debates. Just next week, we'll be holding a debate on whether cancel culture is threatening our freedoms, with Ian Hersi going up against Laurie Penny. So, if you'd like to take part in that debate and many, many more, please go to intelligencesquared.com slash plus and subscribe today with a special offer of 20% off using the code PODCAST. That's P-O-D. C-A-S-T, podcast. And on this week's episode, we were joined by the philosopher Slavoj Žižek to discuss his new book, Hegel in a Wired Brain. And he had a really fascinating conversation with Shahida Bari, all about technology, AI, and what Hegel can teach us about being human in a digital age. Hello, I'm Shahida Bari, author, academic, and broadcaster. And I'm talking with Slavoj Žižek. Hello, Slavoj. How are you? Hi. You good? I'm here, still alive. It's nice to be with you. That's all we can hope for, being still alive. Um, it's the, the 250th anniversary of Hegel's birth. He was born in Stuttgart in 1770. And although anniversaries are themselves enough of an excuse to write a book, it does strike me that you want to make the case that Hegel really does bear upon our lives in 2020. So tell me how. Uh, usually Hegel is perceived, even dismissed, as a kind of absolute rationalist. Everything has a deeper meaning, even when there are catastrophes. You see afterwards that they serve some higher spiritual purpose, and so on and so on. What I try to present is a totally different Hegel. Hegel, a philosopher of radical contingency, Hegel that I call now, this is not yet in the book, Hegel is the thinker of a spirit of distrust. Hegel is effectively obsessed. His entire most famous book, Phenomenology of Spirit, is about this. How even the best plans, projects, necessarily somehow has to go wrong. And maybe through this failure, then something good emerges. Maybe. It's never sure. And I think that in this sense, 
already 20th century was very Hegelian. Look, take already the so-called Great War, First World War. The second half of 19th century was, in spite of wars outside Europe, for Europe at least, a peaceful era, progress, women gradually got uh, the right to vote. There was uh, some kind of uh, uh, health care, uh, retirement plans, and things gradually progressed. And then, my God, totally unexpected carnage, the Great War. Then, October Revolution, it began as a gigantic emancipatory uh, 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 attempt. It ended up in Stalinist terror, and so on and so on. That's what always interested Hegel, how things can go terribly wrong. If they end well, it's not directly in the sense of you plan something or you succeed in it. No, it's that through going wrong, through some kind of a double reversal there, maybe you get as a bonus a success. And this is for me, this is in my book, the topic of uh, of sexuality also. Sexuality always includes a failure in the sense of something goes wrong, but you, then you try to... Eroticization means that you make use somehow of the very failure. That's why I'm trying to mention it. I don't like it. But there is one scene in the movie that we've all seen, I think, for weddings as a, and the funeral, where Hugh makes a love confession to Andy McDowell, and it's a constant series of failures. He mumbles, stumbles, and so on and so on. But the paradox is that it's only in this way that he can, at least it's supposed to be, authentically express his love. If he were to say it clearly, without any stumbling, etc., it would be like a learned lesson. It wouldn't have worked, and so on. So that's what fascinates me in Kegel. And uh, uh, I was going to say, well, you call this rather charmingly the Hugh Grant paradox, as though it were... A yes, so the authentic message gets, gets through only through a failure. So I was going to ask you about this. I think you're right that to, 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 to characterise the phenomenology of spirit and Hegel as a, as a philosophy of failure does seem counterintuitive. But it seems to be one of the, the things that you're, you're tackling is this idea of the singularity and its inability to allow for failure. And I want us to wheel back a little bit and talk about this term, the singularity. Some people might know it from the work of Raymond Kurzweil, the, the American inventor and futurist. And some people might know it from contemporary science fiction, where we are seeing machine intelligence and human intelligence being imperceptibly fused. What do you take the singularity to mean? And, and, and what's its role in relationship to Hegel? I think... And that's the whole point of the book, that to, I'm desperately searching for a dimension which maybe will elute this so-called singularity. But singularity is the radical version. It's almost a new theology. At the most elementary level, we have what Elon Musk calls, it's the name of his company, Neuralink, or what generally is called Wired Brain. That is to say, the idea is that our brain can be directly wired, not just our brain, but our thought processes, 
to a digital network and then since other persons minds can also be wired in this sense we don't need language the dream is that we can directly exchange not not even communicate because there is no communication i can read your mind you can read my mind and what worries me here is that precisely failures in communication disappear here and that's not good just think sorry for the vulgarity just think what this means for eroticism not you you but another person let's say we are flirting and but all the game of misunderstandings innuendos etc in the case of wired brain i think it disappears we look at each other and it's either i want to do it you don't want or we both want or whatever but it's immediately over eroticism disappears and i think that that's one big lesson from hegel human spirit is immanently eroticized so if you take this away you lose you lose precisely the spiritual dimension you get some kind of a flat direct communication not even communication just it's immediate transparency some people like the one you mentioned trekkers while think this will be kind of divine event we will no longer be individuals we will immediately participate in some collective self awareness and it's like divinity will become part of our daily life and so on what i am proud of a little bit in my book is how i showed something which many people don't know that the first to develop this idea of singularity were very harsh bolsheviks in this even i call it bolshevik gnosticism which was a very strong orientation in soviet union in 1920s and the idea was that this is what will happen in communism and they were radical enough to draw the consequences which is in communism there will be no sexuality this radical sect developed this radical but very influential their idea was in the 20s that now that we communists have power in economy in politics and so on the last resistance of bourgeois morality is sexuality and we have to overcome it leave it behind precisely through this kind of direct collective self awareness so again things get complex here but the basic focus of my book is what if and i am not educated enough to say is it technologically possible even this idea of wired brain singularity where we directly share our thoughts but if it will happen in some sense what will this mean for the status of our subjectivity will we be subject yes well this is what i want to ask you so the other term you use of course is the title of the book the wired brain and what i like about your book is that by that you mean not just ai and not just 
the way that we will be able to activate the central heating with the power of our mind, although that's yeah. useful, but also an idea that the central heating will control us. And perhaps that's where you mean that this will not allow for faultiness or failure or sexuality and all the misunderstandings that create sexuality. So you're saying the wired brain will have implications for our freedom. Is that right? Yes, but nonetheless, I try to, maybe I'm wrong. I spoke with many hackers, programmers, and mostly, maybe they just pretend to be kind to me. Mostly they agree with me. I desperately try nonetheless to, my God, I will appear so naive now, no, <laughs> to, save, to save our freedom, to point at dimensions which will elude this. And okay. uh, paradoxically, one dimension that I think will elude uh, uh, singularity, wired brain, is the Freudian unconscious. But how do we read it? Not as some deep irrational instincts, but as a virtual dimension. I use there an example that you must have heard uh, 20 times, uh, 40 times, and so on. Uh, my favorite example from Ernst Lubitsch from Ninochka. A guy goes to a restaurant and says, uh, can I get... Uh, coffee, but coffee without cream, please. The waiter tells him, sorry, sir, we run out of cream, so I cannot give you coffee without cream. We only have milk, so I can only give you coffee without milk. Now, this is a deeply Hegelian thought that what you don't get, the negative dimension, is constitutive of the identity of a thing. In all cases, you get just plain coffee. But this plain coffee can be just plain coffee, it can be coffee without milk, it can be coffee without cream. And in our symbolic universe, it's not the same. So again, my point is, can this virtual dimension, the echo of, of, of what a thing is not, in some things like coffee, when you say, oh, but this is not just coffee, this is coffee without milk. Can this be captured by a wired brain? I think this is maybe one dimension that uh, cannot be captured by the wired you see, brain. You see, if you argue this, you argue towards the, the, the latter part of the book, you say that there is no room for the unconscious in the singularity, and this is the thing that might elude it. And I, I was interested in this because in, in, in the psychoanalytical language of the unconscious, the unconscious is... It is a necessary part of us. It constitutes us, but it's also, you know, the thing that trips us up, the thing that betrays us. Why does it matter that that the unconscious, that there, sh there is no room for the unconscious in the singularity, and that it's the thing that eludes it? Why does it matter? And, and you give us the example of of Beckett, Samuel Beckett. I wonder why he helps us. My favorite writer, incidentally, right. yes, because I think again that this dimension of failure is constitutive, again, of human spirituality. And unconscious means precisely a success in failure. You fail, but through failure, you create another virtual dimension and so on and so on. So I think that I even ironically in the book, probably you remember, I mentioned the paradox of French cuisine a very anti-French anti guy told me how all spe specific dishes or drinks in France can be explained through a failure. They were producing wine, something got wrong, and they said, okay, this is champagne. 
they were making trees, the trees got rotten again. Oh, they said, but that's our trees and so on and so on. And I think that this passage through failure, this dimension, and I'm following now all these new programs uh, of artificial intelligence, I don't think they can do that. So again, my point is, of course, computers can be, artificial intelligence can be infinitely brighter than us and so on and so on. But can it incorporate failure in this specific sense, which I think you find it even in Christianity? That's what I, I think I mentioned it in the book. That's what I admire in Christianity, although I'm an atheist, of course. We have God up there. We cannot access God. What's the Christian solution? Not if you are pray enough, you somehow get in contact with God. No. The true Christian experience is how your separation from God is already immanent to God himself. God himself is separated from himself in the figure of Jesus, who for a moment thinks, stops to believe when he is dying on the cross and so on and so on. So again, this idea of how, as Hegel put it precisely, the fall in the biblical sense is equals human freedom, the space of spirituality. Nothing is before the fall. The fall into sin creates the dimension from which it falls. So what I'm, and that's what I don't like in the idea of singularity, because the theological implication of singularity is precisely that there is no longer the fall. Kurzweil and so on explicitly talk about this. How? When we can directly communicate without language and so on, it's as if we rejoined the universe prior to the fall. Sorry? Well, I was going to say one of the... Can I tell you one of the things that I, I, I like about the book? Is, tell me also then a thing that you don't like. <laughs> yeah, I will, I will. Uh, the thing I, I like about the book, and perhaps I don't like it too, is that it's hard. But I, I think it, I, happily so, because I was very glad that it isn't, and I wouldn't expect this of you, it isn't an anodyne book, uh, one of those myriad pop science books about how technology is changing our lives. I wouldn't expect you to write that. And that's because you, you are you are thinking ontologically, you are thinking about the implications for human subjectivity and the idea of selfhood itself. And and that's what I want to ask you about, because philosophy, one of its strengths is that it allows us to think of ourselves. We place ourselves in the world as reflective, yeah. intelligent, sensory beings, and we make selfhood the object of our uh, attention. But am I right in thinking that you are suggesting that the, the singularity this you know, perfectly wired mind-machine universe is a challenge to our idea of self with itself, that we would no longer be able to place ourselves in that world. Is that right? Yes, but nonetheless, again, I try to describe a space which will survive this passage through singularity. I think, and I do something which is pretty crazy philosophically, I, my claim from the last chapter is that uh, Cartesian cogito, pure subjectivity, will survive. But I do something. I 
this try to introduce a distinction between subjectivity and what we usually refer to as my inner life, the wealth of my uh, the wealth of my experiences, and so on and so on. I don't think this is the true core of subjectivity. I think the horror of the Cartesian cogito, I think, therefore I am, is that in some sense it neither thinks nor it is. It's just an purely empty point, point. This is maybe also what some mystics called, like uh, St. Teresa and so on, the night of the world this reduction of subjectivity to complete zero. So my thesis is that subjectivity is not uh, uh, the wealth of your experiences, inner life, and so on and so on. Precisely, subject is the empty point, the empty form, which remains even if you take all content from me. The machine, other people can have access to all my inner thoughts and so on and so on, but that's not what I am. I am this empty Cartesian cogito. And incidentally, since you are a woman, do you know that that's why Descartes, he's a good guy for me, is the, the beginning of modern feminism even. People don't know this. Women already in Descartes' Cartesian time admired uh, Descartes. As one of them put it, uh, 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 Cogito doesn't have Cogito doesn't have uh, sex, gender, whatever. It's pure neutral form. There were already some philosophers, followers of Descartes who applied this directly to to women and read Descartes as a as a uh, as a somebody who is opening up the space for women as equal to men. I, why do I say modern feminism? Because you know, modern feminism is not what what some people propagate. Let's return to some pre-modern era where there was some kind of a balance between masculine and feminine principle. No, no, no. Modern feminism is much more radical. Modern feminism precisely asserts this empty subjectivity. That's what LGBT is about. And then you just have contingent versions, how you fill it with content and so on and so on. So uh, I think that uh, in this sense, it will be maybe a painful experience, but I think only through passing, passing through, sorry, the wired brain will we discover the abyss of my subjectivity beyond all the content and your dreams and so on and so on. The, the empty subject. Well, maybe you said, you know, I should mention something I don't like. Perhaps it's that, the idea of the empty subject. It's a very disconcerting idea. But the one thing that I think I perhaps... I feel sceptical about the book a little is how real... Tell me, tell me, tell me, yes. I will tell you, this is how real is the wired brain? Because I I take it that you regard it as a real and present danger. Although computer scientists like Jaron Lanier, who invented VR, they are sceptical about it. So what makes you think that it is a real possibility? Uh, You know... I think, I'm not now sure, but they even hinted at this in some of my book, uh, in some parts of the book. Uh, the problem is that it doesn't really matter if it will be fully real. 
it's enough to ruin our lives if, if it will just be accepted and real as real, and then the power structures, state apparatuses will organize our lives. Uh, let me give an example. I even forgot. I don't think it's already in the book. No, it's no. I learned about it afterwards. For example, it's still elementary. It's far from reading our brain. But do you know, I read that in already in thousands of Chinese elementary schools, uh, 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 pupils' children had to wear some kind of a, some kind of a metal ring around their head, which measures their brain activity very elementarily. But the point is that so that uh, the teacher is doesn't have to watch, are they listening to me and so on? No, his computer makes a sound. If somebody is not listening careful to what the teacher is saying, he sees it directly that his attention is not there and so on and so on. Or other things that already can be done. Uh, things are moving in this direction. For example, this link between my brain processes thoughts and making elementary moves. For example, uh, uh, machines can already detect basic orders, intentions. For example, if I'm, and they always like these humanitarian examples, let's say I'm crippled and I'm on an electric wheelchair. I don't have even to move my finger like Stephen Hawking. It's enough that I think forward, the machine moves forward. There is something I think pretty terrifying in this direct coincidence between my inner thought and the external material reality, because when this happens, it Moves in both directions. It's not only that I can be a little bit like God. I think something, it happens in reality. It also goes the other way around. When the machine knows what I'm thinking and so on and so on. And I know many people with obscure links. Who know people, who know people, who know what uh, secret agencies of uh, our uh, defense institutions are doing, and they are telling me that they are all obsessed by this now. That does sound terrifying. I should say that we would never use those sort of brain sensors on Intelligence Squared listeners because we know... Yeah, but you don't have... They they will not ask us. (laughs) You know what annoys me so much now going to this uh, viral topic now? When there were big debates, those, how to call them, I don't know, when you have a smartphone and now there are big debates, if you allow the phone to detect where you are and so on, no, is this an encroachment upon our freedom? Our freedom. Mm-hmm. But sorry, I know at least three states, United States, China and Israel, where without asking us, they are already doing this, you know. Not only this, but also record in Israel. I spoke with an agent who told me they are recording, and then, of course, a computer checks them. They don't give enough people. All phone conversations and so on. We are already, we are already controlled at this level. And what interests me again is, does this mean that we are totally exposed? I think not. Just think about one thing. It's an extremely naive point. Okay, the computer can read our minds, but 
if there is something to learn from psychoanalysis is that our minds are often contradictory already at the most elementary level. It's a stupid example. I think I mentioned it in the book. For example, uh, a boy in puberty usually hates his father. But it's clear that this hatred is superficial, that it covers up or represents a much more ambiguous stance. How will the wired brain register then the thoughts of this person? Will it register the whole inconsistency and so on? What if our thoughts are not unambiguous? What if our thoughts are floating, self-contradicting, and so on and so on? I see, I agree with you here. I see many problems here in, in the sense of even if wired brain will work again, what I fear is that it will reduce us to this flat, simple level, like a stupid melodramatic example. You, we all know from our erotic lives, you often, or sometimes at least, I will not exaggerate, love begins as being annoyed by somebody, even hating him or her a little bit. And then all of a sudden, in a crucial moment, you discover, my God, but it's because I love him or her that I had these ambiguous stances and so on and so on. So, uh, uh, what will happen with this? With all this? That's what. That's what. Uh, that's what. Not so much worries me. That's where I see a problem. Let's pause for a second, Slavo, then we'll pick up our conversation just after this very, very quick break. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, let me let, let me ask you let me ask you first while we have you here about COVID nineteen, which I know is very boring for lots of people like you are, who are being asked about it a lot at the moment. But you do start the book by citing one of Hegel's most famous aphorisms, the Owl of Minerva that flies at dusk, which is to say that wisdom, Minerva's owl or, or philosophy, comes late to the party, and that there have been a number of philosophical interventions about COVID-19, Bruno Latour, Bernard-Henri Levy has just written a book, Simon Critchley. But do you think philosophy should be late to the party? Will we only be able to understand COVID-19 long after the fact, do you think? But I think that nonetheless, philosophy is not totally lost here. Yes, we are always late, but Hegel is not just implying that philosophy comes late, but that the way I read Hegel is that our understanding of a situation always comes too late, but it's precisely through this understanding, which is a misunderstanding, that things then happen. For example, my favorite example, I don't know if I mentioned it in the book, is uh, People forget how paradoxical the Oedipus story is. It's a prediction which actualizes itself only because the parents of Oedipus knew what will happen, but it's through their attempt to avoid it that it happened. If there would have been no prediction, nobody would have told mother and father of Oedipus, or I think only father knew it, I'm not sure, that your son will kill you, father, and marry you, mother, without this prediction, without letting them know what will happen, nothing would have happened. That's a beautiful paradox for me. How uh, how, uh, knowing something doesn't prevent it happening, but it's maybe part of how things happen. I love these paradoxes. What does this mean for... uh, COVID. Uh, I, in one of my comments, I try to develop this, among other things, Hegelian reading of COVID. That, you know, okay, virus, the most primitive entity you can imagine. Virus for some biologists even is not a living entity. It's just a kind of a self-replicating chemical mechanism. Virus is now posing a threat to us. But what fascinates me is that uh, uh, at the same time, if you know, and I'm sure you do, anything about contemporary cognitive thought from Richard Dawkins to Daniel Dennett, for them, and I found this a very convincing theory, at a different level, Jacques Lacan, my psychoanalytic master, is saying the same thing. At the same time, our mind, and especially language, is kind of a virus parasitizing on our brain, on our body, and so on and so on. Dennett and uh, Dawkins are telling this literally. They said our mind is a virus. 
and we, we as biological entities are colonized by a virus. So I, my idea would have been to read the statement, the spirit is a virus, as another example of what Hegel calls infinite judgment. His example is, der Geist ist ein Knochen, the spirit is a bone. Where now we learn that the spirit is also a virus. We are not our body. We, as subjectivity, belong to a space. We are parasites. We are parasitizing on our body. I don't believe in all this holistic stuff of be one with your body. No, there is a radical gap. We are not our body. The whole lesson of psychoanalysis is in this, that we, that's why our sexuality is perverted and so on. We don't fit. I want to ask you a bit more about desire, but, and perhaps this is the connection, because I did notice that you do mention masks at one point in the book, not surgical sanitary masks, but the mask as a metaphor, perhaps like the virus. Did you see the movie with Jim Carrey, The Mask? <laughs> yes, I did. One That's of my, my favourite example. <laughs> Precisely how, you see, this is Freudian unconscious. It's not deep in him. She puts on a mask and there is more truth in a mask than in what is inside him. That's why I always forget which Jane Austen novel is this. Is it Northinger Abbey or which one? You know where? We mentioned Mansfield Park, the one with Mansfield the Park, people sorry, yes. You know where a couple of a young people, they have erotic tensions, they cannot directly reenact them, so they stage a play where well, a boy can tell a girl, I love you because it's part of the of the theater piece and so on and so on. I like this idea of how, as Jacques Lacan put it, truth has the structure of a fiction. Well, that that's what I take that's what I take you to mean that in Mansfield Park, the young lovers are able to show the truth of their feelings when they're performing these parts, and the singularity too might be a mask that feels artificial, but it might allow for reality, and then. I mean, alongside Mansfield Park, you also give us a very striking example, and it speaks to the conversation we're having about desire. You talk about glory holes, which are, you know, that's quite a stark contrast to Jane Austen, frankly, but glory holes are... (laughs) But I, I understood the parallel you were trying to draw out, which is that, you know, these anonymous sexual encounters, usually in men's laboratories, that there is a kind of mask here where there is not... There's a kind of pretense, but perhaps it allows for something real, real desire to emerge. And, and my question was, maybe maybe the COVID masks are doing that too. Maybe sanitary, surgical masks, they are veiling us, but maybe they are permitting us to be our true selves. You too. know where I agree with you, but this is unfortunately not in the book. The book was written too early, maybe, no? Uh, you know where <laughs> I agree with you? Because people are usually saying... Now we will regress to masturbation, no touching, and so on and so on. But I think that, would you agree with this, or is this too crazy a thesis that, from what I know from my sons, from their teachers, and so on, you know that with this explosion of uh, hardcore pornography on digital media and so on, uh, uh, I spoke with many psychologists, sociologists in my country, in United States, and they told me, you know that Actually, now there is less physical love in younger generation, in puberty, in high school, and so on and so on. The, 
you have now a certain stance which I find very sad, which is who has time to go through all the courting process and so on. You need satisfaction, open a porn hub and masturbate, or maybe one night stand. But who has time to do all that? And I think that maybe the paradoxical result of COVID will be that since to really touch another person, you risk a lot, much more will be invested in this. It will not just be a superficial sexual satisfaction. It will be something like love. And I think this is all the difference for me. Brutal sex is becoming virtual more and more. Why bother with real women or men when you can have it in a porn shop and so on and so on? While to have real contact, it has to be more than just sex. Do I quote? I don't think I quote in this book. I, a wonderful comment that I read in The Guardian, I think, where one of the commentators there, Eva Wiseman, reports a wonderful story. The best introduction to psychoanalysis that I know. Uh, she said that she uh, uh, saw, a, uh, saw a, a documentary on hardcore making where the guy in the middle of doing it loses erection and then steps back and says, please give me my cell phone so that to get erection again, I will look at the porn hub. But isn't this in some sense absurd? You have there a real woman contact. It doesn't work. You have to look at a digital fiction. That makes me, me, me doubt how you're going to answer my final question. Because, yes. And you've already, you've already talked about the subject being this empty, empty yeah. point, this empty yeah. vessel. And, and, and perhaps there is an emptiness in the, this version of desire, even though it, it might be the truest form of desire. And towards the end of the book, you posed a, a question which goes as follows. What if subjectivity cannot be undone and it will persist in its negation? And I know the negation... By subjectivity, you mean the traditional notion, inner life and so on and yeah, so on. Well, I wonder in the end, do you still have faith in the inner life and its survival in a wired no, culture. I think inner life is basically a lie. You know what? No, it's not that inner life doesn't matter. You know where I got this pessimist sense? I read a couple of years ago a book called The Nazi Ethics. And then I know from the experience of my own ex-state, Bosnia, Karadzic, the poet, Inner life is for me composed of fictions, ideological fantasies that we construct to cope with the horror of what we are doing in real life. Inner life, you know, every criminal will tell you, but I didn't mean it as bad. I wanted something more noble and so on and so on. Uh, inner life is for me, no, we will not get rid of it, but inner life is for me not the space of some deeper truth. Inner life is for me the space of lies we are telling ourselves, which is why poets who are specialized in inner life are, this is my brutal thesis for which I'm so happy, <laughs> there is no ethnic cleansing without poetry. It's not just, uh, 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 it's not just uh, uh, Karadzic, Bosnia, Go around. A friend from Rwanda, I met him in London, told me that 
the crucial role of poetry in ethnic cleansing Hutus Tutsis in Rwanda, whatever, wherever, Nazis had their poets, etc. Because why? Because the only way for us to hope to to uh, to to be able to do horrible things is to construct some kind of poetical or religious life. So, yes, I agree with you. There will be inner uh, inner life, but it doesn't impress me. The whole of psychoanalysis, the lesson of psychoanalysis is don't trust your inner life. Thank you, Slavo Zizek, for that very lively conversation. And thanks also to the team at Intelligence Squared. I'm Shahid Abari, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. If this conversation has left you wired, then you can find out more about Hegel in a wired brain via the link in the podcast description. And please do join us again. Goodbye. <laughs>